Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As soon as she entered the fortress, she threatened the conspirators from the walls for the crime they had committed and told them she would give them just punishment. Whence the conspirators... Realising they had been tricked, openly warned her that they would cut her children to pieces before her very eyes if she did not turn the fortress into their hands. And she replied that not only was she not the least bit frightened by their horrible threats, but added, indeed, raising her skirts and showing them her shameful parts, that they could do with her children as they wished, because she still had the form to make more. Trigiana Boccalini, The New Sheet from Parnassus, 1612 to 1615. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.12, Katerina Sforza, the Tigress of Forli. Last time, we saw the illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Milan, who was born into a world of luxury and excess. She was educated in how to rule the roots of a party, handle oneself as a stateswoman, and win battles. Sforza's had lived by the sword and had no intention of dying by it. She had been married off to the rather useless, scheming Girolamo Riario, whose sole claim to fame was being Pope Sixtus IV's nephew. This had brought him to power and wealth, but he suddenly found he had neither after his uncle's death. Caterina, who had demonstrated that she far outstripped him in diplomacy, courage and leadership, had already faced down her enemies once, when she seized control of the Castel Sant'Angelo and saved her family from ruin. Now, with her husband indisposed after an illness and treasury empty, she would need to prove herself once more as the regent of Imola and Forli. Today, we will see her more than meet that challenge. Now, I usually like to avoid making too many topical statements in my episodes, because these shows tend to have quite a long shelf life. 
and I'm sure listeners of the future won't be all that interested in the topic du jour of yesteryear. However, I'm sure all of you here in March 2022 are as shocked and appalled as I am at the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I thought about saying something at the end of the last episode, but I hadn't really had time to process everything. Anyone with any knowledge of the history of Ukraine knows how much it has suffered over the years, particularly at Russian hands during the 1930s and again during the Second World War. But here we go again, history repeating itself once more. Quite apart from the violation of a free democratic nation and the deaths caused by the conflict, this has displaced hundreds of thousands of people, a crisis that will likely long outlive the war. People have lost their homes, their livelihoods, everything they own. Kiev is less than four hours' flight away from my home in London. This is happening right on our doorstep. I have already made a personal donation to the Red Cross Ukraine Appeal, and I would urge you all, wherever you are, to contribute what you can to help the refugees of this war and put pressure on your governments to do the right thing by them. I've put a link in the show notes to the Red Cross Appeal, but there are a huge number of other worthy causes, so please give generously. And finally, before we get going with this episode, I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters to keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. With her husband out of action, convalescing from his illness, Katerina would need to act fast to secure her position. Forley and Imola were surrounded by enemies who smelt blood, but first she would have to deal with internal threats. The first of these was Melchiori Zaccheo, the master of Forley's castle, the Rivaldino. He was a brisk former pirate, who had only secured the position after giving a loan to the cash-strapped Girolamo. He was of dubious loyalty and would need to be dealt with before he offered a challenge to Caterina. Immediately on her arrival in Forli, after returning from Milan, she rode up to the castle and demanded that he hand it over. He refused, saying that he had been given it by her husband and would only leave on repayment of his debt. Caterina knew she didn't have the troops to storm Rivaldino, and didn't have the time to starve him out. Now, one of Zaccheo's old drinking bodies was a man called Innocenzo Condrocchi, who then rocked up at the castle and asked to be let in. Condrocchi was no fan of Caterina's. He had been the castellan of the Castel Sant'Angelo when Caterina had expelled him during her occupation of the fortress following the death of Pope Sixtus. He had been made master of Rivaldino before being moved to captain of the guard when Zaccheo had taken over. The two had a raucous evening of drinking and gambling, with the wager being that the loser would have to bring the other a nice dinner the next day. Kudrocchi lost, and so the following day he and a servant showed up to Rivaldino with some ingredients to this dinner and were admitted. 
all seemed fairly jolly until the meal ended, at which point they attacked their host with Sakeo lying dead in a pool of blood on the floor. Katerina, who I should mention was eight months pregnant at the time, rode up to the castle and called out to Kodraki why had he done this. He shouted out from the ramparts, quote, Madam, you shouldn't entrust your fortress to drunkards and people with no brains. He admitted her, accompanied by just one maidservant who brought lunch with her. This was to make people believe that she was worried about being poisoned, but of course this was just all staged. They then went off for some quote-unquote negotiations in private. When she emerged, she announced that Kudraki had agreed to surrender the castle. In a speech outside the Riario Palace in Forli, she announced that she had appointed a new castellan, Tommaso Feo, and that Kudraki had agreed to leave Forli forever. We don't know the exact terms of what they agreed, but once more Katerina had taken a castle and demonstrated her ruthless streak. In the game of power politics in Renaissance Italy, the deck was stacked against her. To succeed, you had to outmuscle, outthink, and most of all, outlast your opponent. Once again, at Rivaldino, she proved that she was in the game, and she was in it to win it. Oh, and to top off her victory, the following day, she gave birth to her sixth child, a son called Francesco, named after her grandfather, the first Forza Duke of Milan. But she wouldn't have long to dwell on this success, because enemies abounded thanks to her husband's strong track record of losing friends and alienating people. The next person she would have to deal with was her neighbour, Ercole d'Este, the Duke of Ferrara. You may remember that Girolamo had fought against Deste in the Salt War, and he had never really gotten over his defeat. Ercole clearly thought that he could bully Caterina. How could a mere woman stand up to someone so impressive as him, and so sought to demean her at every turn? The Duchy of Ferrara sat between Forli and her homeland of Milan, and so Ercole took great pleasure in intercepting letters Caterina sent home and stealing gifts. He then visited Caterina in Imola and accused her of stealing his stuff. It's all remarkably petty, but speaks to how Ercole viewed Caterina. He would never have treated her husband with such little respect. In his eyes, she was a woman, and therefore inferior, and not worthy of the respect due to an Italian countess. But this was small potatoes compared to an attempted coup that took place the following month. Two noblemen, who had claims to Forli that were superseded when Girolamo had taken it over, hired some goons and tried to storm the castle. This was repelled, and the ringleaders captured and thrown in the dungeon. Caterina handled the interrogations herself, and did so with great skill. One of the leaders, a man called Nino Roffi, tried to pin the blame on a farmer named Passi. Caterina ordered that this man be found and brought to the interrogation room. When Passi was thrown in, terrified and bewildered, she ordered Rafi to repeat his accusation. As he spoke, somewhat hesitantly, Passi furiously retorted that it was all lies, that he barely knew the man and certainly didn't support his coup. Caterina believed the farmer and released him, sending Rafi to the gallows. He confessed just before facing the noose, saying that he had only blamed Passi because he had powerful friends who could probably protect him. She made an example of the ringleaders of this coup, 
sentencing them to be beheaded and then quartered. Oh, and just for a bit of theatricality, she hired a really bad executioner, the man who had been responsible for defending the gate through which the coup attempters had entered the castle. It was a grisly, gruesome morning's work, and sent an unmistakable message. Katerina Sforza was not a woman to be trifled with. While Katerina battled to maintain the Riario position, Girolamo was plotting from his sickbed. He managed to talk the people of Imola into funding a 400-strong guard company to protect him and his family. But not long after, Imola couldn't help but notice that he had only hired 100 men. He had embezzled the rest of the money. He also alienated one of his closest friends, Ludovico Orsi. After deciding to levy even more taxes on the townspeople of Forli, Orsi challenged Girolamo on his greed and financial mismanagement. Girolamo accused him of treason and sent his guards to rough him up a bit. At a moment when he needed friends, and for that matter, protection, he chose greed instead. He would pay the price. On the 14th of April, 1488, Orsi and some of his friends snuck into the palace and confronted Girolamo in a room called the Hall of Nymphs. Caterina's husband was stabbed repeatedly, his obese body barely resembling a man once they were done with him. The commotion startled some of the men of the court, starting a running battle that ran through the palace and then out into the courtyard, where it was market day. The Orsis, who were dressed in full armour, easily bested their opponents, making good their escape. The townspeople in the market dropped all of their shopping and stormed the palace. The few remaining guards threw the mangled corpse of Girolamo over the walls in the hope that this would assuage the mob, but they were more interested in the loot. Caterina, who had been dining with friends in her quarters when her husband was attacked, gathered her children and retreated into a tower, which at least offered her some protection, and looked on helplessly as this all unfolded. She knew that the sensible play for Ludovico Orsi would be to kill her and her sons, removing all possible challenge to his coup. She managed to get a message out via a faithful retainer to send for aid from her allies, the Bentivoglios of Bologna and her brother, the Duke of Milan, and for all her loyal forces to make their stand at the Ravaldino fortress. All the while, the Orsis battered down the door. When they forced their way through, they found Caterina amongst her family, embracing her children, shielding them from the bloodthirsty men. One of them tried to grab her sister, who slapped him hard across the face. She was a Sforza, after all. But she managed to persuade the men to do them no harm. They were led to the Orsi Palace, where Ludovico pondered what to do with them. He knew he didn't have enough men to secure Forley and Imola and murdering its countess and a bunch of children wouldn't exactly endear him to the masses. He claimed to the assembled city council that his murder of Count Girolamo had been sanctioned by Pope Innocent himself, a lie, and reminded them that Girolamo was an unworthy tyrant whose deaths should be welcomed, which wasn't a lie. Meanwhile, he sent a message to Rome placing the city of Forli under the authority of the papacy. Innocent's troops would sort this mess out. The Holy Father dispatched Giacomo Savelli, the Bishop of Cesena, who arrived a few days later. He came bearing the banner of the papacy and immediately visited Caterina and her children. 
any harm done to his sister would undoubtedly bring the rage of the Duchy of Milan down on Pope Innocent. So Savelli was at pains to ensure she was treated well. So the Orsis, with papal support now, had possession of Forli. But there was a problem. Caterina's men still held the city fortress and refused to budge. They were well-armed, well-supplied, and not in the mood to surrender. So the Orsis grabbed Caterina, marched her over to the fortress, and made her ask the Castellan, Tommaso Feo, to surrender. He refused, saying that he could only surrender the fortress to Octavian, her son and Girolamo's heir. This, of course, had all been prearranged, and Caterina put on quite the dramatic show, tearfully begging Feo to relent, saying that if he didn't, the Orsis would kill her children. I like to think she slipped him a wink when no one was looking. This whole episode, by the way, is related by our local chronicler, Andrea Bernardi, who was in the crowd watching all this unfold. Furious at this waste of time, one of Orsi's men pressed his lance right up against Katerina's chest. He spat, quote, If I wanted to, I could just run this spear from one side of you to another, and you would fall at my feet, dead. Katerina looked at him, coldly, right in the eye, actually leaning into the spear point as she replied, quote, Don't you try and frighten me. Certainly you can hurt me, but you can't scare me, because I'm the daughter of a man who knew no fear. Do what you want. You've killed my lord. You could certainly kill me. After all, I'm just a woman. She had called their bluff, and everyone in Forley had seen her stare down her husband's assassins. Savelli, worried at how close Catherine had come to being murdered, took her from the Orsi custody and placed her under his protection. In all the commotion of the move, Caterina managed to pass a message on to Tommaso Feo. She had a plan to turn the tables on the Orsis. The next day, the Castellan passed word to Bishop Savelli, saying that he would be willing to surrender Rivaldino in return for payment of his wages and a letter of commendation from Caterina, who had to come and give them both personally. Savelli and the Orsis agreed on the condition that this all take place in plain sight, in front of everyone. So, everyone went up to the castle, and Caterina approached the walls. Tommaso then abruptly changed the terms of the agreement, demanding Caterina be allowed inside the fortress to conclude their business. The Orsis were furious, but Savelli, clearly just wanting all of this off his plate, said, OK, go in, but make it quick. The drawbridge was lowered, and Caterina walked across. As she crossed it and reached the gates, she turned to the crowd and, to everyone's shock, gave them the finger. Well, actually what she did was raise her hand, folded back her index and ring fingers, and tucked her thumb behind, which was an obscene gesture at the time. The drawbridge was pulled, and Caterina was safely ensconced behind the fortress walls, leaving Savelli and the Orsis spluttering with rage. Now, you may be thinking, that's pretty cool, but what about her children? Hasn't she abandoned them and left them to be hostages? Well, yes. Yes, she had. And the Orsis wasted no time seizing her children, marching them up to the fortress walls, and demanding that she surrender to save them. She mounted the walls and saw her children below, 
daggers at their throats, wailing in terror. Now, what happened next is disputed in the sources. The most famous and colourful version has her responding to the threats to her children by lifting her skirt to expose her genitals and yelling defiantly, quote, Do it then, you fools! I have the means to make more! This was recounted most famously by Niccolò Machiavelli, who includes this in his Discourses on Livy and Florentine Histories, and this version found its way into the historical record via various other writers, including in the extract that I read at the start of this episode. Another version of the story, less visually eye-catching and therefore probably more likely to be true, is best recounted by the contemporary writer Bernardino Zambotti. Quote, She began to call the Duke of Milan to her aid and defence, saying to the Folivese that she would rather suffer the death of her children than give up the fortress, and said that she would never give back the fortress, rather she would raise it to the ground if they were to harm her children reminding them that she was also carrying another in her body. And in this way, the Folivese found themselves tricked by the astuteness of a magnanimous, wise woman, which was a wonderful thing and most worthy of being remembered. The many city councillors were overcome by a woman, and it wasn't true that she was pregnant, but she faked it. Whichever of these was true, Caterina was playing a very high-stakes game but was also turning a perceived weakness into a strength. Here, as we've seen before and will see again, her opponent's misogyny caused them to miscalculate. They both underestimated her fortitude and willingness to surrender to gender norms and roles. They thought that, as a mother, she would do anything to protect her children's lives. But Katerina had sinned through them and was calling on their bluff. She was trusting that Bishop Savelli would not allow the Orsis to harm her children. Quite apart from the moral implications, they were the relatives of the Duke of Milan. If anything were to happen to them, then it would surely mean war. And was the situation really any different? If she surrendered, the Orsis might well have her and her kids killed in any case. At least this way, she held some of the cards. Whichever way you swing it, she was gambling with her children's lives, and Machiavelli is far from the only person that has judged her harshly for that. The Venetian ambassador dubbed her the Tigress of Forley, willing to eat her young in a desperate attempt to win power. Whichever way you want to look at it, I'll leave you to make your own minds up. She had gambled everything on her children's lives. And she won. Bishop Savelli would not allow the Orsis go through with their threat. They skulked away, writing furiously to their allies, most notably the Medicis, asking for assistance, but none came. Caterina kept them on their toes by having her artillery fire warning shots of their houses, ensuring no one was hurt, but sending an unequivocal message. Meanwhile, in Rome, Pope Innocent was in a bind. Ambassadors from Florence and Milan competed for his attention. His armies were poised to advance on Forli and were more than sufficient to take the fortress. But, as Caterina had predicted, he dared not alienate the Milanese. And that is when the troops from Bologna arrived. Remember, Caterina had written to her friend Giovanni Bentivoglio, the ruler of Bologna, asking for aid. He had taken his sweet old time, but a week after the standoff had begun, 
he arrived at the head of 1,800 men and horse. Now, this is where things get complicated. Bishop Savelli produced some letters from the Pope, which indicated he was sending an army to Forley. This emboldened the people of Forley to kidnap the Milanese ambassador and lynch two agents of Bologna. But the letters were forgeries. No papal reinforcements were coming. And when another army marched into view on the 29th of April, they carried not the papal banner, but that of the Sforzas. 20,000 Milanese were now camped near the city. And the game was up. The Orsis rushed to the house where Caterina's children were being kept, hoping to use them as leverage to save their lives. But their guards bravely barricaded the door and prevented them from entering. With Milanese soldiers hot on their heels, they retreated to their palace and awaited their fate. Meanwhile, the drawbridge at Rivaldino lowered, and Caterina walked across alone. Her children rushed towards her, embracing the mother they never thought they would again see. Her poker face collapsed into tears of joy. It had all paid off. She had won. Katerina was magnanimous in victory. The Milanese soldiers were expecting the joys and spoils of a good sack of Forli, but Katerina held them back. The Folivese, who had expected the worst after they rebelled against her, celebrated in the street, shouting, quote, Our lady doesn't want it! Our lady doesn't want it! The Orsis managed to escape, heading first for Venice, who turned them away, before seeking sanctuary in the Papal States. She would have some measure of revenge, though, for the death of her husband, and the ordeal that she and her children had been put through. The man who had thrown Girolamo's body through the window and into the courtyard was dangled from that window by the neck, before being dropped down and lynched by a baying crowd. The Orsi patriarch, who had been too old to make a quick escape, was tied to a plank and then dragged around a cobbled street by a horse. Others faced similarly gruesome deaths. Caterina may have spared her city the pains of a sack, but the guilty paid a heavy price for their crimes. Not everyone, though, did face summary justice. Prominent Folivese, who had enabled the Orsi takeover without being at its centre, were generally heavily fined or exiled. Once justice had been seen to be served, she wanted to draw a line under this whole business and look to the future. Forley and Imola needed to be introduced to Octavian, their new eight-year-old ruler, with Caterina acting as regent. Over in Rome, some skilful politicking from Cardinal Riario saw the Pope confirm Octavian's position as count and his mother as regent. He may have been part of the attempt to overthrow them, but now was time to move on. Her first moves as regent were to reduce the onerous tax burden imposed by her husband and re-establish good relations with her neighbours. But no one at the time was concentrating on all of that because scandal was in the air. Antonio Maria d'Odelafi was Forley's most eligible bachelor. His family had ruled the city before the Riarios had taken the title and he'd spent much of the last few years knocking around the region breaking hearts everywhere he went with his devilish good looks. 
he saw an opportunity to unite Fawley's ancestral ruling house with its current occupants by proposing marriage to Katerina. He did so in the most Hollywood way possible, by firing two arrows into Revaldino with his proposal attached to them. Katerina was quite taken with Antonio, and she invited him to spend some time with her and the family when they went on their summer vacation to a villa near Imola. His supporters played this up for all it was worth, spreading the word that Katerina was on the brink of accepting his proposal. The biggest gossip monger of all was the chronicler Leone Cobelli, who went as far as to commission banners and standards with Katerina and Antonio's coats of arms entwined. But here's the thing. Katerina had no intention of marrying Antonio. And why would she? A widowed regent was basically the ideal position for a woman with political ambitions. She had all the security and wealth without a husband controlling her every move. Marriage to Antonio would make her weaker, not stronger. But Antonio's lady whistledowns were causing her real problems. The gossip had spread to Rome, Milan and Florence. Marrying so soon after her husband's death was quite the scandal and both the Pope and Lorenzo de' Medici spied an opportunity to remove her from power and replace her with a regent more disposed to their ways of thinking. Even her uncle, Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, was beginning to ask questions of her, wondering if his niece had the temperament or judgment to be trusted to raise a Sforza lord. So when Caterina returned from her summer trip, and realised what had happened in her absence, she knew she had to act fast. Cobelli and the other gossip mongers were arrested and thrown in jail, while Caterina shot off letters to her allies, the Medicis and the Pope, saying that she had never any intention of marrying Antonio. He was sent away, and she spent months and quite a bit of cash supporting religious causes in an attempt to salvage her reputation. And this only emphasised the fragile nature of her power. Female rule is rarely accepted easily, and many influential people refuse to give her the respect due into her position. As an example, one day she visited her fortress at Imola and was refused entry by the castellan Giovanni Gerardi, who claimed that her husband had owed him money, and that only once he was paid would he let her in. He was paid off, and the standoff resolved, but Katerina had to bite her lip to assuage her righteous anger at this defiance. She knew she would have to have control of her fortresses. Only then would she be secure in power. What happened next is another one of those episodes in Katerina's life that is highly controversial and the matter of debate. On the 30th of August, 1490, she visited Rivaldino and walked a while with the Castellan, her loyal friend to Feo. They discussed military strategy, and their stroll took them outside of the castle keep to an orchard. The more suggestive sources here make great hay with how provocatively she was both dressed and behaving, how flirtatious she was being and suggestive, how they shared some apples together, and she then asked him to escort her back to her chambers. So far, so scandalous, However, when they reached her rooms, heavy-set guards grabbed him and placed him under arrest for, quote, indecent behaviour. These sources paint this as a classic story of entrapment, 
of how she had used her womanly wiles to beguile and trick an honest man and to steal his position. And did you notice the uh, reference to the Garden of Eden with the orchard and the apple? I certainly didn't. Other sources are far less salacious, reporting the more simple fact that Faye had been arrested and sacked as Castellan for indecent behaviour. Where the sources agree, though, is arguably the most intriguing part of the story. She had done all of this for her lover, Tommaso's brother, no less, Giacomo Feo. I know, right? Delicious scandal of the First Order. Now, there were some good strategic reasons why this might be a good plan. As stated before, she wanted people she could trust in charge of her fortresses, and having her lover as Castellan over a man who had powerful friends like Cardinal Riario that may not always have her best interests in mind could be beneficial. Then again, Tommaso Feo had been a loyal servant to her and saved her in the tumult following her husband's murder. This all seemed a might ungrateful. So who was this Giacomo? He was 20 years old, eight years younger than Caterina, and has spent his early days as a stable groom. He was therefore not of noble birth, but was a bit of a hunk, handsome and athletic. Caterina had known him since he was a boy, and it's quite possible that their affair had been going on for years. But, to state the obvious, he was not an ideal choice for her husband. He had no wealth, title or rank, so marriage was quite impossible. But that didn't mean she couldn't enjoy her young lover, nor give him the position of Castellan, even if it meant shafting his brother to do so. Not long after installing him at Rivaldino, she got her revenge on Gerardi, the Castellan of Imola. She promised him a boatload of silver to be deposited in Modena in exchange for him leaving. He agreed, but when he arrived in Modena, he discovered not cash, but the Renaissance equivalent of an IOU. He complained to Caterina and her uncle, but it was no use. He'd been tricked and had no recourse. A new Castellan was appointed, whose loyalty was not in question. Caterina could now enjoy the victor's spoils in the arms of her dashing young lover and Ravaldino. This was the happiest time in Caterina's life. Her power base was secure, Her children were safe. She was free from the bonds of matrimony and an overbearing husband. And she had a handsome young lover whom she consumed with passion. Historian Ernst Brisek sums it up rather well. Quote, For the moment, all that meant most to her, power, love, health and beauty of body, were hers. Even better, as Castellana Rivaldino Feo was not allowed to leave the fortress, so she could go about her day dealing with the business of state and retire at night to the warm embrace of her toy boy. Happy days. Caterina was spending more and more time at Rivaldino, and there she developed something of a green finger. Growing up in Milan, she had been fascinated by the botanists and alchemists at her father's court, and there developed a lifelong interest in horticulture, particularly concerning cosmetics and beauty. She would spend hours mixing different herbs, growing, distilling and drying her plants and their fruits to create all sorts of compounds. 
We know, for example, that she used a patented blend of saffron, cinnabar and sulphur, which she used as a shampoo and conditioner to keep her golden hair shiny. Just a note, do not try that at home. That mix is highly toxic. As you might expect, news of Caterina's love became the talk of northern Italy, and her friends and neighbours were soon sending ambassadors to meet this Giacomo and size him up. Her uncle Ludovico's representative knighted him, both to make Caterina happy and raise his social standing. The stable boy had become a knight. He had also become a father, with Caterina giving birth to a son, Bernardino, and some whispered that they had even done the unthinkable, that they had secretly tied the knot and were living as husband and wife. These rumours were given further credence by a report from the Florentine ambassador, who reported seeing Caterina in total thrall to Giacomo, that she had totally subjugated herself to him. These rumours were everywhere, but you had to be discreet, because saying such a thing out loud could be very bad for your health. One man was flogged to death after repeating the rumour in front of Caterina, but no amount of lashings could keep the gossip from spreading. People complained that this stable boy turned Castellan was getting uppity and vain, they had too much influence over the Lady of Forley and Imola, that their true lord, the boy Octavian, was being sidelined by this upstart, who plots to usurp his position and take his title. The Florentine ambassador summed up the complaints like this, quote, The fort is in the hands of Master Giacomo, and Caterina may not enter it unless she is unattended. All the money and revenue pass through the hands of Master Giacomo, he pays the soldiers, rides with the pomp and circumstance of a reigning sovereign, and all appeals are received and replied to by him. These complaints, born out of jealousy, morphed into something more hostile, because, in Renaissance Italy, there was no end of men in dark corners plotting murder. In September 1491, Giacomo and Caterina were en route to one of their castles near Imola. They were tipped off that a cabal, including the Castellan and a powerful local noble, Inea Viani, was planning to kill them both when they arrived. Caterina sent ahead some of her soldiers who arrested the Castellan and the other ringleaders, or except Viani, who managed to escape and take refuge in Ferrara. Under torture, they confessed the conspiracy, but claimed they were doing it all for Octavian, to save him from Giacomo Feo. They were sentenced to death, but Caterina commuted their sentence to life imprisonment. It would not be a good look for the lady's justice to appear like the avenging hand of an overprotecting lover. After bombarding Ferrara with letters demanding the extradition of her lover's would-be assassin, Viani was eventually captured and thrown in jail with his fellow conspirators. But even with the failure of this plot... Danger still abounded. The Florentine ambassador prophesied an inevitable Shakespearean end. Quote, A catastrophe is imminent, and one of these three things cannot fail to happen. Either Caterina will assassinate her lover, the lover will assassinate Caterina and her children, or Octavian, who appears to be a lad of spirit, will, on coming of age, put his mother and her lover to death. Which of these, if any, will come to pass? Unfortunately, 
You'll have to wait till next time to find out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.